Hello and welcome to Mon the Workers, a podcast brought to you by the Scottish Trades Union Congress. I'm Karina Liptrot, and in this episode, we are commemorating International Women's Day by discussing gender equality, women's trade union activism, misogyny, and sexual harassment. We are joined by three inspiring women from the Educational Institute of Scotland, which is one of Scotland's leading teaching unions who represent over 60,000 members in the teaching profession. Firstly, I'd like to introduce Andrine Bamford, who is Vice President of the EIS. Andrine became an English teacher in 1995 and has since worked for East Dumbartonshire Council first as a Principal Teacher of Support for Learning and then as the LA Secretary. Andrine is joining us from her home in Kirkintillic. Welcome, Andrine. Thanks for being here. Great, great to join you today. Thank you. Next up is Julie Ferguson, who is a biology and chemistry teacher in Orkney. Being a deaf and blind teacher comes with challenges, but Julie is committed to activism and tackling discrimination in her role as an EIS equality rep and being on the STUC Disabled Workers Committee. Julie lives with two adorable rescue cats and enjoys playing piano, knitting and embroidery. Hi, Julie. Thanks for taking the time to chat to us. I was really pleased to be invited. Thank you. And lastly, but by no means least, we have Salma Augusta, who joined the EIS in February 2020 as National Officer for Equality. Salma's role involves supporting members to develop EIS work and policy on equality issues affecting teachers, lecturers, students and pupils in Scotland. In her spare time, Selma receives visitors from her native Norway, walks her dog and enjoys making prints, pots and graphic novels in her art studio in Edinburgh. Welcome, Selma. Thanks, Karina. Great to be here. Historically, what roles have women played involving trade unions? What challenges have women trade unionists faced? And do you feel that those challenges have been overcome? We'll go firstly to Andrine. You know, the challenges that face all women in the workplace face women in, in trade unions. So, you know, um, where we have women who are working, but as well as that, having, a, you know, the, the main caring responsibilities in their houses or single parents looking after children on their own, you know, to find time for trade union activities as well as their work, as well as looking after the ch- children. That is a real a, a real issue that we've got to try and look for ways to overcome. We were, you know, we have discussed, you know, things that um, we might do as a union to try and overcome that. For example, in our union, we have rules that govern each of our committees that say there has to be a 50% female makeup. That's been a really good way of promoting f- women. From my own perspective, when it comes to women in trade unionism, I like to take a look at Helen Keller. And a lot of people will be familiar with Helen Keller as um, a deafblind woman from the United States. And one of the things that Helen Keller worked on, and among all the other amazing things that she did in her life, was actually to push forward the civil rights in America and also the important role of trade unionism. And a lot of people don't actually know that about her. So I look at her as well and I just think, let's go, Helen. Let's go, Helen, indeed. I did not know that. That was really interesting, Julie. Thanks for sharing. Selma, would you like to add anything? So I think it's really interesting to look at women's role in the trade union movement because throughout history, issues that affect women have always been pushed to the sideline. It's been viewed societally as private individual matters, which of course is a real barrier to collective organizing and building solidarity. 
between a group of shared interests. And on top of that, we still see that women's work is underpaid and undervalued. So I think all of these um, matters are very relevant today and really interesting to look at through the lens um, of EIS history, which we're currently exploring through the creation of a poster series that maps women's equality in relation to EIS history for the last 175 years. Yeah, it's funny how you think that we've come a long way with equality, but every now and then you hear something and that makes you do a double take because it's like, have we really? (laughs) While researching this podcast, I found out that it was only in 1975 when the Sex Discrimination Act came in that it was made illegal to ban women from continuing to work after getting married, despite the ban being lifted for women teachers already in 1945 in Scotland with the Education Scotland Act. So today, with it around 80% of the teaching profession being women, Julie, what would you say that the gender equality is like within the education professions now? So it's interesting that you mentioned the ban on women remaining in teaching after marriage, because I actually have a family linked to that myself, because my, uh, my grandma Ferguson, my dad's mum, she was actually a primary teacher back in the 1920s and 30s. But when she got married, she was asked to leave her job. Um, she had her children, then World War II came along and most of the men went off to fight in the war, so she was asked to come back to teach. But then when the men came back in 1945 and 1946, she was asked to leave again. And I look at that and I just think, that's a great way to thank someone who pulled your feet out of the fire during a war to, to um, take care of children's education. Someone who spent years improving her education and spent years looking after children and making sure that everybody was receiving a fair and equal education just to be booted out again. So the fact that we now can't do that, I really appreciate that. But you can still push women out of jobs and out of teaching by default through through the way that you support them in their, um, in their roles at work after they've given birth. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting example from from Julie. There were attempts to overturn the marriage ban, for example, in 1928, but that was denied. And I just want to quote this horrific quote from a senior judge in England explaining why. And he said that the duty of a married woman is primarily to look after her domestic concerns and it is impossible for her to do so and to effectively and satisfactorily act as a teacher at the same time. And although this is a horrific quote made as an excuse to um, push women into private and domestic spheres, it says something about the real labour that women have to do on all fronts that we still need to look at today. So we're seeing a real tension continuing throughout history and today between patriarchal forces reinforcing a strict gender order and women's labour rights and economic freedoms. So I think that's, that's incredibly important and something that's been brought to the fore during the pandemic. So although in the teaching profession, we no longer have pay differentials explicitly on the grounds of gender, which used to be in place, there is an underrepresentation of women in senior and promoted posts, especially in the secondary context. And it's an overrepresentation of women in, in primary. So the patterns exist today, just um, changed slightly. So yeah, I would, I would completely agree with what Selma was saying there. Um, 
So we, yeah, we do see. I mean, traditionally, yeah, teaching has been seen as a as a profession. Is now, ironically, seen as a profession that is is good for women who have children because they have long holidays. They don't need childcare during their holidays. They have, you know, they have school hours. So it's been something that's been seen as quite attractive to those teachers who have who have children, and that's because again. Still today, in 2022, the, the, the burden of the caring responsibilities for children still, still lies with, with women. But I think the pandemic it brought to the fore the fact that you know women were working from home at the same time as maybe their husbands were working from home, but the burden of the caring responsibility still was placed upon the women. So women were having to, to do all this work, you know, teach classes on teams, you know, put upload lessons. They're working constantly, but at the same time as having to look after their their, their children, having to run a household, you know, and the clear division of labour, it may have been there in some some cases, but what we do know from, from the surf, our survey to members is that, you know, it, it, that wasn't widespread. That wasn't something that was universally enjoyed by, by the majority of women. It is just still in this day and age far easier for men. Um, and we do need to think about ways in which we can overcome that. Thanks for bringing that up, Andrine. Even just the mental load, let alone all the physical extra responsibilities that women usually have to take on, is just so much higher than what men usually have to do. And in the wake of International Women's Day, it's really about time that we addressed this and made things more equal because it's just not fair. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> more recently, the EIS has been forefront in campaigning for equal rights on a range of issues and with national pay campaigns. Just to go more into the campaigns, I'd love to hear from each of you which campaign really stands out for you and why you like it so much. And we'll go to Salma. Um, sure. So I, I think I'll really like to talk a little bit about the 1000 Women's Voices project, um, which was a survey that ran from the end of 2020 to towards International Women's Day 21 and gathered the stories of 1,127 women EIS members across sectors and roles um, about their experiences during the pandemic of both paid and unpaid work. So um, just relating back to what we've spoken about earlier, 20% of our members who responded to that survey had main or sole responsibility of childcare at that time, and most of them were working from home. And a third of those 20% had absolutely not a single person to help with that childcare. So um, all of them were still, were still pretty much working at the same time as taking care of children. Um, and 65 of those who already had other caring responsibilities as well had seen those uh, increase. So obviously the pandemic has shown a light on the experiences of, um, of women that that we've known have existed from before, because even in pre-pandemic um, times, women worked on average across Europe 13 hours more a week unpaid than men and seven hours less a week paid compared to men. So we already know that. Um, and and during, during the pandemic, this has just been heightened. We know that mothers were interrupted while working from home 50% more than fathers. And at the same time, we've seen um, women's paid employment reduce. And, and we know why. We know because it's exacerbated existing inequalities across the board. Obviously, women with um, intersectional identities will have experienced this in different ways. And we must account for that 
for that as well. What we need to learn from this pandemic is to continue our work to address the issues that affect women's labour and to really organise that to make that core union business. I'm glad you you put, shed some light onto it because the figures are so stark that it really makes you do a double take when it's all laid out in front of you like that. Andrine, would you like to tell us about your campaign? Yeah, yeah, we, we campaigned um, during the pandemic, you know, for you know women to have more flexibility in the workplace. Well, not just women, but teachers in general to have more flexibility in the workplace. Uh, so during the pandemic, for example, um, you know, when we had the school closures with people working from home, but what we were trying to make, make sure people were aware of is that people's people people's whole lives now have been turned upside down. Um, so that was quite a lot of hard work campaigning at both both ends, both locally and nationally, to make sure that employers understood that. And as well as that, you know, I mean, we're talking about women, but really, you know, intersectionality is, is really important as well. So women, um, I've spent a lot of time with women who have, you know, various health conditions, which meant they've needed their own uh, individualised risk assessment. So, um, and what we're finding is that sometimes, you know, these are overlooked and there's a battle to be done to make sure that employers recognise, not just, um, I think, you know, yeah, certainly during the pandemic to make sure that, that, you know, there is, you know, the risk of catching COVID is as reduced as possible. But actually, this is showing a wider issue that there are people with real significant health problems that should be getting more support in the workplace than perhaps we've been getting before. So there's been a lot, a lot of this work that's been done around COVID has actually thrown up a lot of other um, issues that have, have made us see that we need to campaign harder. You get some really good examples there. Julie, would you like to tell us about a campaign which you loved? So a campaign that EIS put forward and the Selma touched on it was the 1000 Women Voices. And I took part in that. And from that, there came out a video as well. And so I also took part in the video. And it was um, seven women who were all sharing um, snippets from their, from their day, from morning, the afternoon, the evening, and just talking about the things that we were dealing with that were specific to that moment in time during the pandemic. From a personal perspective, I found it really hard to be honest and open about how I was feeling, about the mental health impact. Dealing with my disability, I lived alone, and so I was having to deal with all the changes that were making the things that I do to cope with my disability less easy to do. And needing comfort from other people, but not being able to get that comfort because I wasn't allowed to actually spend time with people outside of my household. So yeah, that was actually, it was a bit of a light bulb moment, but I'm glad that I did it because some of the feedback I've had from people was, thank you for just laying it out for us because we needed to hear that. But uh, on a more general level, I've done a lot, I did a lot of work with um, with EIS and with STUC campaigning for disability um, related issues with the pandemic. And a lot of that was, quite hard work and it was just trying to make sure that all of the accessibility was actually in place and talking to people and saying can you put the captions on in in this video can you um, can you speak more clearly can you turn your video on so I can lip read and the amount of education that was involved in explaining to people what we need and women are more likely to be disabled than men 
so this is an extra thing that we're having to do, that we're having to explain. And a lot of the time with the sort of knee-jerk reaction to that's not really that bad, and women tend to be disbelieved more than men are because we're not as authoritative. So it's just, you get that double whammy of, are you sure that that's really that bad? <laughs> I wouldn't be saying it if it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And going on to women not being believed, <laughs> it's well documented that women still face sexual harassment, misogyny and inequality in workplaces today. And later, we will go into the Silence is Compliance report by the STC Women's Committee, which details that within the last year, one third of women who were asked have experienced sexual harassment at work. How do you think we can tackle this so that the workplace is a safe environment for everyone? Sexual harassment will affect many of our members in the workplace and out with work. And also many of our members will be supporting pupils and students who experience harassment, whilst at the same time dealing with their own history of gender inequality and or gender-based violence. We know that one in four women in Scotland have to go through domestic abuse in their lifetime. You know, we know that this is something gender inequality and its manifestations through violence is something that affects so, so many of us. And I think um, there can be a tendency to underestimate the impact and the intertwining of those different forms of violence. So sexual harassment is a form of gender-based violence. I think that's really, really important um, that people know and to take take it seriously and that it's tackled through, you know, um, challenging misogyny. I think that's so important and that's not just dealt with an, on an individual basis, but that it's tackled as the societal problem that it is and its links um, to women's uh, inequality, that it functions, you know, as a cause and consequence of women's inequality. It's enabled to continue because of women's inequality and it enables women's inequality to continue because it functions as a way to keep women, um, you know, to attempt to keep women silent, to put women into the private sphere and to, uh, to attempt to hinder women from speaking out. So I think sexual harassment, you know, must be understood for what it is and misogyny and misogynistic attitudes and structures within our society must be tackled. And and that is where the link between wider equality issues and the workplace um, must intertwine. We must take that really seriously as trade unions. When it comes to sexual harassment, it's, um, it's quite incredible how many people will talk it down and pretend it's not as bad as it is, or they're sort of like, really? Are men teaching boys in schools that actually it's not okay to talk about girls and women teachers in a bad way? Because there are so many things people should be doing, but all we get back is not all men. Yeah, it's really frustrating. Yeah, I think I think one of the ways in which we, we have to try and tackle this is to have better reporting. And and a lot of it is about, you know, the intent. Oh, but he didn't mean that. Oh, he might have said that, but he really didn't mean that. Or that was meant as a compliment. Or, you know, you picked that up wrong. Or that's just that's just his manner. So it's unfair for, for a woman who's experienced sexual harassment to then have the indignity of having to go through a process like that to explain what's happened to her. 
But actually, the biggest problem is, as both Selma and um, Julie have 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 spoken about there, it's it's the cultural it's the cultural background that that sits on, and it's about we need to educate we need to educate workplaces that jokes about women jokes about you know um, you know uh, comments about women's appearance that are that are un, unwarranted unsolicited are are not are not appropriate in in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And even our general secretary, Ros Foyer, was sexually harassed when she first started employment. And that was really the catalyst for her to get involved with the union. And she went on to become an equality officer from that experience. And then she even became the sexual harassment officer for her workplace for that. I feel like we have barely scratched the surface on what is such a massively important topic. But I hope that the listeners will feel more empowered and enlightened about what's going on and thank you so much Selma, Julie and Andrine for coming and showing us the great work that EIS is doing and I'm sure the EIS will continue their amazing campaign work. Thanks Karina, great to be here. Thanks Karina, thank you. Thank you Karina. The STC Women's Committee recently surveyed over 650 women in Scotland about their views on sexual harassment. Whilst it's important to understand and acknowledge that men, boys and non-binary colleagues also suffer from sexual harassment, the Women's Committee decided that this survey would be concerned with documenting and further investigating the experiences and views of women workers in Scotland. The findings from the survey, combined with the heart-wrenching testimonies of women's experiences and views throughout, will be utilised to support internal and external campaigns and educational opportunities and crucially to advance policy, political and industrial demands relating to sexual harassment in Scotland. I am joined by Erin McCauley, who's an equality officer with the STUC, who will tell us more. Hi Erin, thanks for being here. Hi Keena, thanks for having me. So what are some of the key facts and figures that came out from this report? Some of the findings from that survey show that 45% of women have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace. 50% of women know or are aware of a colleague who are currently or have experienced sexual harassment at work. 85% of those women that have experienced sexual harassment at work chose not to report. 70% of those that did report their experience felt unsupported. Half of women that were sexually harassed at work were harassed by a manager or someone in a position of influence and power. And, um, you know, less than half of women that we surveyed were aware that their workplace had um, any sort of sexual harassment policy. I can't believe that. That is so grim, all those figures. When it's all laid out like that, it's just it's really hard to look at and just to know that these are real people's experiences. Going into the title, Silence is Compliance, can you just explain a little bit more about what that means? So what we mean by the title is that, you know, it can't just be women who are speaking up and challenging sexual harassment at work because for too long that's been the case. For too long, the responsibility of preventing and tackling and challenging sexual harassment has been placed on that individual, mostly women, rather than a holistic workplace preventative approach where the employer takes responsibility, where, you know, workplaces themselves 
begin to eradicate a culture that has been accepted for so long. Thanks for explaining that. It's really shocking how rife it is and how unsupported women are in the workplace. What will actually be happening with this report? What are the next steps for this? And how can we actually make proper systemic change from this? The report outlines a variety of recommendations for employers, for government. And, you know, the whole report indicates that whether it's in the workplace or in the street, women do not feel safe and it's not been taken seriously. So, you know, there's a whole host of recommendations and, you know, the Women's Committee will be urging trade unions to increase their demands on employers to implement those recommendations. And in addition to that, put further pressure on the Scottish government to hold employers to account. I really hope so. And there's lots of other recommendations and tips in the report, which I will link in the episode notes. Thank you so much for joining me, Erin. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I'll catch up with you at the STC Congress in April in Aberdeen. Thank you so much. See you there. Thanks for listening. We are taking a short break and we'll be back with a special series on 125 years of the STUC later this year. This episode was hosted by Karina Liptrot. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Our username is at ScottishTUC.